Good morning. Welcome to Tombow Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor. It's my uh, delight to open the Bible with you this morning. I want to encourage you guys to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to begin something uh, this week that's going to take about the next seven weeks as we dig really into this one section of Scripture. It's one that's famous. Um, in fact, there's a verse in here that for some of you, if you're uh, biblically literate and you like Christian knickknacks, you probably have uh, this around your house somewhere. And, and there's a verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, that's one of the most popular verses uh, in the Christian world. I want to read it to you. You guys don't have to worry about throwing it up on the screen. And if you don't know it already, if the buzzers aren't going off, we'll see if uh, we've caught you up to speed. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I'm going to do something. I didn't do this in the first service, but I should have. And I'm going to ask you to be honest, and I'm going to make a promise. I'm not going to pick on you, no matter how you answer this question. But if by chance you have this verse somewhere on a piece of artwork, coffee cup, knickknack of some sort in your house, would you raise your hand? That's okay. See, that's okay. You thought I was going to mess with you. Because I make jokes every now and then about the fact that the Christian bookstore is half books and half potpourri and other stuff. And uh, it's okay for you to have it. This is a popular verse and it's a powerful one because it's a great promise from God. But it's one that oftentimes gets thrown onto Christian artwork and pulled out of its context and meaning. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is dig into the context around that promise to understand what it means for us. And this is an incredibly insightful section of Scripture. See, Jeremiah 29 is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah on behalf of God to the people of Judah in exile. That's a big sentence. But let's back up. If you're 30 or under, I want to start with the basic concept. It is a letter. Now, letters are like emails. But longer and written with your hand. And we send them in the mail. Now, now the mail, the postal service, that's like FedEx, the people that bring you your stuff from Amazon. Except they work for the government and they deliver letters. Those things that you write when you want to send a message to another person. Are we good? All right. You don't want to get people lost with the generational gap there. So it's a letter from Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet. So a letter from Jeremiah is more than just a letter from Jeremiah. It's a word from God. And it's a word from God to the people of Judah in exile. And so this is incredibly important to understand this letter, is that this is a word from God after the wheels have fallen off and everything's been destroyed. These are the words of God to his people who've just lost everything. In Jeremiah chapter 29 uh, verse 1 through 3, we get the setup for this letter. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem. The craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So here, here's what I want you to see has gone on here. The people of Judah have been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, and everyone of prominence, 
training, education, everyone with the capacity and stature to lead from Judah has been taken and deported to Babylon. It's important to understand the history of what's led to this. So if you go back in time, uh, King David ruled over the entire kingdom of Israel. His son Solomon led them through a season of prosperity and blessing. And then after Solomon, during his son's reign, something happened and there was a split between the north and the south. And so in the north, they were called Israel and in the south, they were called Israel. Judah. Now, about a a little over a hundred years before uh, this going on with Babylon and Judah, the Assyrians came in and they took over the northern kingdom of Israel. And and they no longer really exist. Judah has held strong for a season, but has turned from God. So this guy, Jeconiah, his father, Jehoiakim, they are not necessarily useful kings who followed God. In fact, one of the things that they had done is that they had begun paying tribute to the kings of Babylon. So here's how that would work. A larger kingdom would threaten to take over your land if you didn't pay, so you would pay. This is kind of like how the Godfather worked, if you've seen that. So they're paying for mob protection and eventually decide that the tribute payment is too high. Now, even the payment of the tribute is a problem. Because God had told the people of Israel he would establish them in the land, he would protect them, he would defend them, and he was to be their king and protector. Not to trust in the kings of men to protect and defend them. But they did. Eventually they grow tired and, tired and weary of paying tribute, and Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, eventually conquering it and deporting all the families of prominence and wealth all of the tradesmen and craftsmen to go and to serve the Babylonian Empire and left in Jerusalem the sick, infirmed, and poor to fend for themselves in desolation. And if that wasn't enough, the Scriptures give us a clue that their captors enjoyed what they had done to Israel. And they added insult to injury. In Psalm 137, you hear this. The psalmist records the experience of the deportation as they're kind of walking from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they stop for a break there along the river. And we get this. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willow trees we, there we hung up our lyres for our captors required songs of us. And our tormentors mirth saying, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So to add insult to injury, their Babylonian captors set them down and say, why don't you sing for us? Sing one of your songs of victory. Sing one of your songs about how Moses led you through the wilderness and you had victory over the nation surrounding you. Sing one of your songs of your great hero David who conquered the giant, who defeated the nation. Sing your songs of victory, you people of Judah. Babylon approaches. And at that moment, as they cross the river into Babylon, they enter into this experience that the Bible calls exile. 
This experience of being away from home in a foreign land that you do not know, that is not hospitable to you, all the while longing to be home in the land of promise. As the people enter into that experience, it's a season of hardship and difficulty. And the reason I think this concept of exile is incredibly important for the church is because if you pay attention to the world around us, Christians have entered into a bit of an exile here in America. Now, we haven't been deported. We haven't been moved away from our homes to another country. What's happened has been far more difficult, I think, to deal with is that everything around us has changed so that home no longer feels like home. Let me give you just a couple data points to track with me and this idea that that there's this method or, excuse me, this, this season of history and culture throughout the West that was called Christendom. And it was the dominating religious culture of the Western world since Constantine. So for more than a thousand years, uh, throughout the West, the basic rules of morality were built upon biblical principles. People generally affirmed that the God of the Bible was the God who had created all things, and that Jesus was His Son, and that following Him was ultimately the right and true path. Now, not everybody believed and was born again, but those were generally accepted, accepted principles culturally. Things have begun to shift, though. And even in that, you begin to see some of these things are odd. So we have in D.C. the National Cathedral. It's a cathedral, which is a fancy word for church. But it's not an explicitly Christian cathedral, which is interesting. How do you have a non-Christian cathedral? How do we have a cathedral where Muslim imams preach the Quran alongside Christian ministers praying to allegedly the same God. How does that work? Well, it works when there's a cultural expression of Christianity that is the norm, even when it's not necessarily the faith of our hearts. One of the things that we're having to wrestle with is the reality that this cultural phenomena known as Christendom is dead. It's not dying, it's dead. The data points are are important to, to see. The first is that church attendance is plummeting in America. Do you know, even in the North Houston suburbs, the estimated attendance in church is about 30%. Now, that means that 70% of people don't attend church in the North Houston suburbs. Now, we're in a section of the country that is often called the Bible Belt, where church attendance is at its highest nationally. And you can look around if you've ever played hooky, and I don't know if you guys have. I don't, because I have to be up here, you'd all know. Uh, there are hundreds of things going on on Sunday mornings other than church. When most of us were children growing up, there were no options. In fact, I grew up in a small farming community that was almost exclusively Catholic, so much so that the school cafeteria on Fridays only served fish. There was no red meat option. I'm not exactly sure why that rule was made. I thought it was relegated to Lent, and the rest of the year we could do it. But in El Campo, Texas, it's year-round fish on Friday. Wednesday night basketball and football practice let out early so students could go to catechism. The entire community functioned with the church as its hub, namely the Catholic church in in that area. Now you look at places like Tomball, those kinds of concessions to people of faith used to be normal so that things like uh, sports for children on Sunday was off limits. And now that's the biggest day of the week. I'm not here to judge the sports programs. I'm here to say it's a fact. Ultimately, I think the 
people of God should prioritize gathering to worship with the people of God over things like Junior's batting average. But that's the sporting guy's deal to schedule things. What it does depict is a shifting reality in our culture. Second, you'll, you'll note this, is that Christian leaders are no longer seen as the moral authority in our communities. As recently as 2001, when the Twin Towers were knocked down, uh, we gathered the people of America together and we were collectively ministered to as Billy Graham shared insights from the Word of God. Fast forward to the most recent presidential inauguration, Louis Giglio, an evangelical leader who's known primarily for his effort to end human trafficking, was too controversial to even say a prayer. Things have shifted. You go beyond that, and you look at surveys, there's an interesting demographic that has been emerging. It's a segment, when we answer questions about our religious affiliation, called the nuns. Now, that's not N-U-N-S. Those are women who volunteer their lives at the Catholic Church. N-O-N-E-S, nuns, means when they're asked, what is your religious affiliation, they check the box that says, none. Zero affiliation at all. Now, this used to be really a negligible, almost undiscernible number, but in most recent surveys, it's one in four in the 18 to 30 segment. And then you pile all that on top of the reality that our nation has put into law an absolute rejection of the Bible's teaching regarding morality and sexual ethics. I say all that not to rant and start a culture war, but rather just to put some data on the table in front of us so we can realize this is not the world as it was 10 years ago. Not in terms of our understanding of religion, not in terms of the role of Christianity in the church in our culture. The death of Christendom is a reality. There is no returning either. I'm not a prophet So I could be wrong, but I'm reasonably certain that there will never be another moment in American history before Jesus returns that the overarching cultural perspective of what is good and right will be defined by the Bible. That time has passed and will not return. And truthfully, I don't know if we would want it to return. See, Christendom and this cultural Christianity was really comfortable for Christians, but not necessarily helpful for the church. It was an easy place to live and be a Christian, but it bred an anemic, weak form of Christianity because walking with Jesus didn't cost anything. And now we live in a world where faithfulness to Jesus, like the world of the New Testament, is starting to have cost. Now, not all-out persecution, but cost. Things like being socially ostracized. Things like potentially not getting the job you wanted to get because people look at your social media feed and figure out that you're an evangelical Christian and they don't want that in their office. Those things are realities. And we have found ourselves in our own season of exile. And so I think it's incredibly important, knowing that we are there, knowing that we're no longer at home here and we're in this kind of uncomfortable environment Needing to discern a way forward, the letter of Jeremiah to the exiles of Judah, surrounded by the Babylonian world, is incredibly useful for us. So I want you to just hear the letter. 
Hear what Jeremiah has to say to the exiles, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you shall find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. This amazing promise from God that He gives in this letter. A letter to encourage, a letter to teach, and a letter to instruct. And I love that He begins with encouragement, and I want us to begin there as well. So we've looked at all the data points that indicate that the world is shifting around us and that the church is ultimately losing its position of prominence and power in American culture. But I want you to know this, is that the church is not on the retreat. So if you hear all of that and you go, oh man, we're we're losing the fight, that's not the whole story. See, the church is growing explosively around the world in, in ways that we haven't seen. Throughout Africa and Asia, even in communist China, where there is a great cost to following Jesus, the church is growing explosively. Throughout the Muslim world in the Middle East, we're seeing people come to faith in Christ in ways that we haven't seen before. I've heard stories of missionaries ministering in the Muslim world for years without seeing anyone come to faith. And now we're seeing rapid and explosive growth of people coming to faith, people getting involved in underground discipleship movements. God is at work, not only there, but also in America. One of the strange things to to think of is that the church in some segments, actually in most segments in America, is plummeting. That the Catholic church is, is falling, that the mainline Protestant church, the Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, those groups are dropping Rapidly, The Southern Baptist Church are holding steady as a denomination, but holding steady when the population is growing is losing ground. Uh, The only growing segment of the church in America, and this should excite all of us, there is one segment of the church in America that's growing. And it is evangelical, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches ages 18 to 34. The only segment of the church in America that is growing are young evangelical, gospel-preaching, mission-oriented churches. Now, this is unique because for years, that age demographic has been missing from the church. 
not just small, not just uh, 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 diminishing, but absent altogether. Even in the 80s, with the church growth movement going nuts, it was people 35 and older as they had children plugging them in to the programming that the church provided for the whole family. But what we're seeing is a, an explosive growth of young Bible teaching, gospel preaching churches. That should excite us. All is not lost. God is moving in a way we hadn't expected. In a way that none of the strategists would have said, we're going to grow there and fall everyone else, everywhere else. God is on the move. And we're seeing it, and it's exciting. It's just not on the news every evening. So with that encouragement that God is at work and the Spirit is moving and all is not lost, we want to jump into a reality of the exile that we find ourselves in and that the people of Judah found themselves in. You'll find it explicitly in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. You're going to see this similar phrase in verse 7 when he says, I have sent you to that city. You're also going to see it in verse 14 where he says, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. This exile where Judah finds himself, is the work of God. It is by God's design. And it's important when you are in these seasons where it feels like the whole world is shifting against God's people, the whole world is moving in a direction that doesn't seem in line with God's purpose to remember that God is in control of even this, that this season of difficulty, this season of being marginalized, this season of exile is not an indicator that the enemy is victorious over God. It is not an indicator that the darkness is victorious over the light. What it is, is in fact evidence that God is faithful to his word. And I want to make sense of that because that seems odd that, that the apparent uh, loss of ground for the people of God is, in fact, evidence that God keeps his promise. But in Deuteronomy 28, God gave promises to the people of God. He, this is the Mosaic Covenant where God says, this is how I want you to live when I take you into this promised land. And there's two sets of promises I want us to look at from Deuteronomy 28. The first is the promise of blessing if the people are faithful. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Here's what he says. If you will obey the words that I give you today, I'm going to bless you beyond what you could imagine. I'm going to bless you in every area of life. You'll be blessed in your family. You'll be blessed financially. You'll be blessed socially. You'll be blessed as a people. And I love the the wording here. He says, blessing will overtake you. That's a word image of blessing grabbing you, wrestling you to the ground and forcing you to be blessed. This is what I'm going to do, God says to the people of Israel, if they follow faithfully. So obedience, blessing. It's a promise. Now, that's not the only promise in Deuteronomy 28. Go to verse 15. But 
If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So in the same way that you were blessed for obedience, you'll be cursed for disobedience. Cursed shall be Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, and the increase of the herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. So he says in the same way that if you're faithful to what I'm giving you today, to my word, to be obedient to me, you're going to be blessed in the same way you're going to receive discipline correction, and judgment if you disobey. And so what Moses says to the people is, I put before you this day life and death. Choose who you will serve. And the people say, we'll do it. This isn't too hard. We're going to follow God. But they struggle. And they find themselves wanting to be like the people around them, the nations around them, wanting them to have kings who will rule over them and gods that they can see, believing that that is where blessing is found. They found themselves looking at the wealth of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, whoever it was they were near, and desiring to be like them, believing that somehow these false gods provided better than the God of creation. And when they forgot God's hand of blessing, they were disobedient. And God was patient in that. See, what we're looking at is the promise of God where he says, look, if you disobey me, I'm not going to let it continue. I I will, in the end, discipline you harshly. And so whatever you think Jeremiah 29, 11 means, where, where, where you have this promise from God for a future and a hope, you need to understand that the God making that promise is one who disciplines disobedience. It's not all sugar, sugar plums and lollipops with this God. He's a father, and he's a good one, which means he doesn't cheer you on when you act like a fool. He corrects and disciplines harshly, if necessary, to return and restore. But it's not one of these promises that you can just bank on and say, God's got me, it's all roses, and I have no kind of role in obedience, walking by faith and trusting him. He's just going to give me good stuff. This exile is by design, and it's by design because God is faithful and the people were unfaithful. And so God disciplined them. God corrected them. God brought hardship upon them. God removed his hand of blessing from them. He removed his hand of protection from them. And he allowed them to experience the weight of the consequences of their sin. And even in that, he was patient. It's not like they decided one day we're going to reject God and next week he brought in the Babylonians. It was years and years and years of God patiently waiting. So what was the reason for their exile? Well, with Judah, it's quite simple. It was long-term, blatant disobedience to God. And eventually, God becomes impatient. I mean, he's got a long wick. But it will burn out. And the people of Judah, over decades and decades of disobedience, turned from God. A friend of mine, uh, Jesse, who's a pastor over at Terra Verde Church, not too far from here, has had the opportunity to lead uh, groups through trips in Israel. 
And, and he's, he's let me in on a few archaeological things that I think are intriguing when you look at Israel's history. He says there's this place as you're entering, entering into what was kind of the boundary of Israel under the reign of Solomon. So there's some kind of marker along the road that's kind of left, whatever's left after years and years and years of, of weather. And, and so there's these noticeable kind of piles of something that we say these were an entry point marking that you had come into Israel, into the promised land where the people of God resided. He says you kind of follow the road and then it kind of bends around and in less than a mile on the right side of the road you, you come to what's left over of an Asherah pole which is a an idol used to worship Asherah who was a Canaanite goddess of fertility and worshiping her involved all sorts of ridiculous sinful practices that were packaged with the label of religion on them. And he says, it's crazy because here's the entry that says, this is where the people of God reside. And then I take a right turn and I find evidence the people of God don't act like the people of God. He says, more than that, as you go through the archaeological record, you find really interesting things. So ancient cities uh, would be built really on top of one another. You'd build a city, the enemies would come in and knock it down, and you would just level it out because moving the stones is too hard, and you would build on top of it. And layers got created over time. They call that a tell. And so you can actually dig down, and you'll find layers that show you what things were like during that period of time in Israel. And so he says, this is crazy because in parts of Israel, not even on the border where, the, where maybe non-Jewish people would have been living, but places that were exclusively lived in by the Jews, you start digging in and you find weird things. Like the people of Israel have a rule against eating pork. Why are we finding pig bones with the food scraps? So you begin to find in the historical record that the people of Israel for extended period of times just flat on rejected God's call and command. And eventually... God says, guys, you're not living like my people. I'm not going to treat you like my people. Judgment and discipline come. And when the wheels fall off, God speaks to them. Now, for us, I I can't tell you why this season of exile has come upon the church in the West. I I don't know. Um, God hasn't told us explicitly like he did uh, for Judah and for Israel. I do know that really from the beginning, the church has had this exile experience, that this isn't new uh, for the church. In fact, it was part of the experience of the New Testament church. If you go to 1 Peter, uh, you'll find this in Peter's letter. He begins it in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, a couple things that I want you to see there. One is here's the church called exiles, and they're also exiled by design because they're elect exiles. God has chosen them and this experience for them. But God doesn't seem to be disappointed or in any way judging them. The message is grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the church finding itself in this position of exile is not necessarily because God is displeased. It has a different function. And it has a different intention. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, as the letter continues, you'll start to see this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think in First Peter chapter 1, we begin to get clued in to the exile experience for the church. The, the reason for the exile for Judah was long-term disobedience. The reason for the exile for the church is different. And it comes down ultimately to three goals that God has for his people. And the first is that he desires to prepare them for something. That this season of exile is intended to be a time of preparation for what God has called them to do. You see, hardship creates something in us. Very rarely does ease and luxury develop character. Every year in August, something crazy happens in Texas. It's 117 degrees outside and 4,000% humidity. And 14 to 18-year-old boys put on football pads and go run around for hours in the heat. Tempting fate and heat exhaustion and heat stroke for the goal that they would get to do something cool one Friday night between now and the end of November. Now in that, All this crazy that happens in August is not fun or enjoyable, but it has a purpose. It is pain for the purpose of preparation. Because we know that what's going to be required of their bodies to be able to do that glorious Friday night in November, they will not be able to do if they don't gut it out in the August heat. That's how life works. You don't get stronger, faster, more agile, and tougher drinking smoothies by the pool. That's not how it works. So this season of difficulty and this season of exile is a time of preparation because exile creates a longing for home. It begins to stir in our heart for what our home is like in the presence of Christ and we begin to long for it more. And when that longing comes, that exile then compels us to live out the kingdom so that we begin to renovate our current reality to look more and more like what home will be. So it creates and stirs in us something. If you're curious how long this season of preparation lasts, biblically, here's the bookends. Nehemiah had four months of exile and preparation and prayer to rebuild the wall. Moses had 40 years of exile watching sheep in Midian. So somewhere between four months and 40 years of preparation is a reasonable expectation. So there's preparation. The second thing that exile produces is it has a reason in that it accomplishes a purpose. See, God sent us into exile by design as a part of his broader plan of redemption that requires us walk through this season of exile. One of the things that that I think is interesting as you study the early history of the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells the church, you're going to go and be my witnesses through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You fast forward six chapters, you find yourself in Acts chapter 7, Everyone who believes in Jesus is in Jerusalem. No Judea, Samaria, into the earth. So God incites or allows persecution to be incited against the church. And they scatter. And a guy named Philip leaves Jerusalem, finds himself on the road to Ethiopia, or meets an Ethiopian eunuch who's headed home, shares the gospel with him, and he takes it back to Ethiopia. And the gospel finds its way to Ethiopia because persecution hits Jerusalem and Philip along with others scattered. 
as a purpose. Even beyond that, we just celebrated Christmas. And, and part of the Christmas story is, is the coming of the wise men from the east. Now, we don't know a ton about them, but what we believe is they're Zoroasters, which is a, a religious system that was kind of kept among the people group known as the Chaldeans, which is a fancy word for Babylonian. We also know that in this same deportation, a man named Daniel was taken to Babylon. And through God's providential guidance, Daniel becomes the leader of the wise men, counselors, and prophets of Babylon. And I believe that somehow through Daniel and his influence, the story of God's prophecy through Balaam, that a star would rise among Judah and a scepter would come, was transmitted and kept on record. So that here, years and years and years later, men come and worship Jesus at his birth. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, who was a part of that persecution that scattered the church, stood up and preached in Athens amongst the great minds of the Greek world. And he addressed them regarding the true nature of God. And I want you to hear what he says. Paul, standing in the midst, in verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also the altar with this subscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord and heaven of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they might feel their way, that they should seek God, and in the hope that they might feel their way toward him, and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. I want you to hear what Paul says in relationship to this exile being about God's purpose being accomplished. He says, God has defined the very times and places that you would live. That God has placed you and I here in the northwest suburbs of Houston at this very moment that we would reach towards him and that we would be used by God to draw other people near. This season, this difficult place we find ourselves is a part of God's redemptive purpose for all of creation. It is not the enemy walking in victory. It is God advancing his plan. It's just hard. And with that, it's important to understand the final purpose of this exile is not only that we'd be prepared, not only that we would accomplish the purpose of redemption, but it would result in praise of Jesus because the gospel being dispersed as the people of God spread, spreads the fame of Jesus. And we saw that in First Peter. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. This idea that this experience of difficulty, these trials, were going to result in praise. Look at this. Th- these trials happen so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold though it per- that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the on- and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. That this season of difficulty will, will lead to two things. One, people will be praising Jesus and you will be honored in his presence. That this exile that we walk through is hard. Our culture has shifted. It's difficult to walk with Jesus in the midst of the world that we find ourselves in. We will not be applauded and high-fived and told good game for faithfully preaching the gospel and serving people and trying to make disciples. It's not going to happen. So we can set that aside. And I don't think we need to fight the culture war to try to bring that back. Here's what I think we need to do. 
commit to the mission that Jesus has given us to make disciples and reach the nations, believing that God's word is true, that Jesus will be honored and glorified, and that for our difficulties, after this difficult trial happens and our faith being tested is genuine, there will be honor and joy in the presence of Christ. We believe in that. And because of that, we can take on the difficulty of this season and the awkwardness of not knowing where we stand with friends and neighbors because we believe in Jesus and trying to sort that out. We can walk through that because we know this is by God's design. God has placed us here. God has not left us to fend for ourselves. The enemy has not been victorious. We're going to walk through something hard. And 1 Peter 1 tells us that he's going to guard us until the day that he returns and we get to be returned to our home with him. So I want to encourage you this morning. God has put you here in this difficult season to prepare you for something, to accomplish his purpose that will result in his praise and your joy. Let's keep moving. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a good and loving God. Father, I pray that in the midst of this difficulty, this awkward season of exile and longing for home and trying to discern what it means to be the people of God in this place at this moment, that you would encourage us and equip us. And that we would just be confident moving forward, knowing that you're in control, that this is by design and that you have placed us here and that you are good. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling, that you would lift them up and encourage them. We pray for all of us that you give us courage and faith to move forward faithfully, making disciples and reaching the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.